Hello, friends, brothers and sisters, children of God. Welcome back to Jack the Bridge. I know it's been a while since we've sat together, and um, I've been perusing a few of the things that I have, books and pieces of really neat literature, but I can't really pull myself away far enough from the Red Network uh, I, I, it's something I feel like I need to get a little further into to to have a sense that I've kind of completed delivering uh, this almost hundred year old message. And what is so clear, if you have heard any of the Red Network podcasts that I've done, is that. The, the struggle is extremely reminiscent, uh, really ever present between radicalism or progressives and, uh, people who just want to live, uh, the tenets of really Christ's commandments, um, which are obviously love God with all your heart and soul, with all your strength first. And then, of course, to love your neighbors as you love yourself, to do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. Um, but it seems prevalent, um, especially in a society that is increasingly adversarial and um, per capita narcissistic that uh, there's there's a lot of stubbornness in narcissism and in identifying with uh, causes and really with discord with the uh, with chaos with discontentment. Um, with really, uh, disharmony. And that's what it seems that certain components of society prefer it, at a group level. In any case, 
What I'm going to read to you now is part three of, and part three is called Who's Who? Who is who in radicalism? Getting back to what I'm reading from, The Red Network, a who's who and handbook of radicalism for patriots, written by Elizabeth Dilling, copyrighted 1934 and printed in the United States of America and published by the author. Also, Elizabeth Dilling is known as Mrs. Albert W. Dilling. Uh, this writing here is, is the introduction to part three of this book. Uh, now, the who's who, this is literally the who's who, a listing, sometimes just one or two lines, sometimes two pages of individuals uh, and often, of course, tied into organizations that I that I briefly mentioned, and I just went into the A's, uh, just just so you can the the first name the last name of the first person doxed on this listing, I believe, is Abbott. It's the last name. The last name in the Z's is Max Zuckerman. In between, there are even people who are dead, like Karl Marx. Uh, but Anyway, um, and, and also uh, prolific writers, uh, uh, people like Langston Hughes, uh, up Sinclair, Upton Sinclair, another writer. These are off the top of my head. Um, <clears throat> but really, those names, uh, uh, some of them don't really matter so much anymore. Because, well, obviously with, with the push to erase a lot of the history. So this is really to, to bring it back to light that we're still, we're still God's children going against the very, uh, up against a struggle that is, has been ever present, uh, obviously to, to many of our ancestors. So let's take it to the bridge. Part three, who's who? Who is who in radicalism? The communist, socialist, anarchist, first world war teaching is that the red revolutionary movement is the Marxian class struggle of the proletariat or poorest class against the bourgeoisie or small property owning and tradesman class in an effort to dispossess and create a dictatorship of the proletariat over the bourgeoisie. It is amusing to hear this preached at a great red meeting filled with several thousand well-dressed bourgeoisie and to see, as I have, the numerous fine cars, including a Rolls-Royce, draw up to the door after such a meeting. The Red Movement is a revolutionary, not a class, movement. Its strongest opponents are neither scented, 
sleeping capitalists, nor the shiftless bums, but the great working class of ambitious, self-respecting, common-sense Americans who have no desire to be proletarians, glorified or otherwise. Radical forces are drawn from all classes, from the dumbest type of proletarian bum who anticipates revolution as a diverting opportunity to devent his envy and hatred by loosing, looting, and murder, all the way to the defogged capitalist type with suicidal tendencies who helps finance the Red Movement and whose sons acquire their warped theories from red capitalist-supported college professors. And the idealistic, sincere, humanitarian type who believes the red road is the right road, and who beckons others to follow him over the precipice into Bolshevism, believing it is for the good of humanity. Probably few leaders become really great unless they do believe sincerely in their cause. Even Lenin, when he ordered the torture and murder of millions of dissenting Russians and ended freedom for the rest of the population, probably believed the end justified the means. Idealistic Reds may dislike the deception, camouflage, boring from within, false fronts, and ruthless characteristic of the Red movement, yet consider these tactics necessary and justifiable. Dupes are enlisted in every Red organization. Sincere pacifists make excellent material for while all pacifists are not Reds, all Reds are militant pacifists, and all pacifists are used directly or indirectly to further the Red scheme of breaking down patriotic spirit and national defense, which are major hindrances to Red Revolution, internationalism, and, in quotes, the new social order. Did you just hear that? This is me, my friends. The new social order. This is published in 1934. Hmm. Back to the bridge. We may believe in the altruism and personal sincerity of the intellectual, radical leader, admire his learning or personal charm, just as we believe in the sincere religious devotion of the Hindu, who, according to his religion, offers his baby girls for vile sex degradation and physical injury, jabs nails into himself, and offers bloody human sacrifices to his god, Kali. But we need not follow either. Neither sincerity nor ignorance mitigates the effects of their acts upon their followers and victims. On an old tombstone was carved, As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare for death, 
and follow me. But underneath, a wag had scribbled, To follow you, I am not bent, unless you say which way you went. Americans now living in a fog of radical propaganda created by pinks, yellows, and reds of all hues and shades of opinion need to know which way leaders, writers, lecturers, and public officials are going so that they may be free to decide whether or not they are bent to follow them. The fact that some of those working for one phase of the Red Movement may disapprove of the other of its component parts does not lessen the assistance given to the whole. Various grades and types of radical organizations have been provided to enlist those of all sorts of interests and of all shades of pinkness. Those who will go just so far and no farther toward red revolution are being led along until, like pupils, they often move up a grade from time to time, just as the stockyards utilize all but the squeal, the red movement utilizes all possible persons in the service of its united front. Even the discontented Reds who leave the main Communist Party in anger or disgrace are gathered up by the smaller opposition Communist Parties whose leaders fight in print and fraternize in private. There they work for the cause as before. The Reds and their friends, the Liberals or Pinks, who so violently clamor for the unlimited right of free speech for Reds to agitate violent revolution and confiscation of property and to fling abuse at religion, our form of government and its defenders bitterly object to the slightest free speech on the part of their opponents and are fond of vilifying and suing for libel those who comment unfavorably upon their activities. They not only endeavor to silence opposition by suits, intimidation, and boycott threats, but also by confusing and lulling to sleep the non-radical American public. Intellectual radical leaders are constantly poo-pooing in public the very existence of a red revolutionary movement so that they themselves may be unopposed while working for its success. An alert and hostile public is a formidable force to combat. Better that those who would oppose us sleep, says the radical. Better wake up, says the patriot. For only a majority of any nation guides its destiny. This who's who lists one or more of the affiliations of about 1,300 persons who are or have been members of the Communist, Anarchist, Socialist, 
First World War or pacifist controlled organizations and who through these memberships, knowingly or unknowingly, have contributed in some measure to one or more phases of the Red Movement in the United States. Both list and data are incomplete. To make either complete would be an impossibility. The full names of organizations which have been abbreviated in this who's who may be found in both index and at the head of descriptive matter concerning them under the section of this book on organizations, which is alphabetically arranged. Most of the organizations and publications referred to in the who's who are identified or described in the section on organizations. The names and information in this who's who have been taken principally from official literature and letterheads of organizations mentioned from the radicals own American labor yearbook and the American labor who's who from the report of the joint legislative committee of the state of New York investigating seditious activities called the lust report based upon the documentary evidence from the U.S. from U.S. Report 2290 of the Special Committee of the House of Representatives to investigate communist activities in the United States, headed by the Honorable Hamilton Fish. Just an aside, brothers and sisters, Hamilton Fish was a, a governor in New York, became a governor who actually, I, I have an older friend who knew Hamilton Fish as a young, as he, when he was a young man. And, um, an interesting factoid, uh, the Hamilton Fish Bridge, which crosses the Hudson River is probably about 20 miles, a, a fewer miles than that from where I am now. And I've heard it rumored that this old cabin that I live in now that I've that I've rebuilt, maybe nicer than it ever was. It's just an old shack, really, uh, that it was perhaps may have been Hamilton Fish's hunting cabin. So small world, because I just came across that. Anyway, back to these uh, references. From literature and data sheets of Mr. Fred Morvan, National Secretary of the American Coalition of Patriotic Societies, New York City. From reports by Mr. Francis Ralston Welsh of Philadelphia, attorney, long a patriotic research authority on subversive activities. From the documentary files of the Advisory Associates, Chicago, and from Chicago Furnished, by the Better America Federation of California and from other reliable sources. And then here is this really brilliant little note that, uh, that Ms. Dilling put in this. Mrs. Dilling, pardon me. Um, and this is just before this doxing occurs. And, and we're talking names, addresses, where they're from uh, originally, um, who, who every affiliation that she could possibly fit, she must have had, I don't know how many people, what I guess the equivalent of paralegals or uh, investigative journalists helping her with this. But I love this. And I'm going to close uh, as far as the writing. I'm going to close with this. 
mention in this who's who will be regarded by those who are proud of their affiliations as a badge of honor, by those ashamed of them as a blacklist. <laughs> Love it. Anyway, it's uh, it's a really wonderfully, well, it's been a rainy week and a half, and it looks like we have more coming, which is great for our gardens. Um, it's, it's made my watering schedule a little less stringent, but nonetheless, uh, I wake very early. I, I get up, and most of the time I do my podcast very early in the morning darkness, which is why... You probably noticed I've, I've really lessened my momentum uh, over the longest, through the longest day of the year. And now that the days get shorter, well, when I wake up, there's a little darkness left that I can creep up into this loft where I feel like the sound is best and where my head's uh, as clear as, as can be for, for this kind of, of reading. Um, wherever you go, Wherever you are, wherever you find yourself today, know your essence is, is that of God, is, is that of Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Wherever you go, you have that essence. And it is such a wonderful gift. So please bow with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. Have a great day. God speed.
and sisters and children of God, welcome back to Jack the Bridge. Today I'm going to read chapter 5 of Nikos Katzenzakis, The Last Temptation of Christ. As I look through this chapter to prepare to read it, We'll see uh, in the development, as often happens in, in books, especially longer fictional books or books with any descriptive quality uh, that revolves around characters and their development. Uh, there, It seems like pages and pages before you get to where the point is. In this chapter, we, we get away from the mud and the blood and the beer, and um, we, we get to, uh, to actually witness or read about Mary, Jesus' mother, counseling with, uh, with, rabbi, with a rabbi and also more of her interaction, more of our interaction between, between Jesus and his worldly mother, his mother. Anyway, without further ado, yeah, it, uh, books like this are, are like paintings, you know, and, and I believe that it's, it's, it's as though we, 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 we build this layer by layer. And as the great artist, the, the off the, off the charts surrealist father of surrealism, Salvador Dali used to say that he didn't realize, really wasn't able to put together the entire meaning and value 
of what he was doing until it was completed. And even then, people would have to point it out to him. And I believe that so with with uh, especially an art form like literature uh, by such a master as as this as Katzenzakis was and is as we talk about writing chapter five let us go my children cried the old rabbi opening wide his arms to collect the bewildered mass of despairing men and women let us go i have a great secret to reveal to you courage they began to run through the narrow lanes behind them raced the cavalry herding them on. The housewives shrieked and closed their doors. More blood was going to be spilled. The old rabbi fell twice while running and started to cough again and spit up blood. Judas and Barabbas took him in their arms. The people arrived in flocks and burrowed into the synagogue, panting. They stuffed themselves in, filled the courtyard too, and bolted the street door. They waited hanging upon the rabbi's lips amid so much bitterness. What secret could the old man divulge to them to gladden their hearts? For years now, they had suffered misfortune after misfortune, crucifixion after crucifixion. God's apostles continually sprouted out of Jerusalem, the Jordan, the desert, or rushed down from the mountains, dressed in rags and chains and frothing at the mouth. And every one of them was crucified. An angry murmur arose. The branches and palm trees which decorated the walls, the pentagons, the sacred scrolls on the lectern with their pompous words, chosen people, promised land, kingdom of heaven, Messiah. None of these could comfort them any longer. Hope, lasting too long, had begun to turn to despair. God is in a is not in a hurry, but man is, and they could wait no longer. Not even the painted hopes which took up walls of the synagogue could deceive them now. Once while reading the prophet Ezekiel, the rabbi had been swept away by God. He jumped up, shouted, wept, and danced, but still did not find relief. The prophet's words had become part of his flesh. In order to relieve himself, he took brushes and paint, locked himself in the synagogue, and began in a divine frenzy to cover the walls with the prophet's visions. Endless Desert Skulls and bones, mountains of human skeletons, and above, a heaven brilliantly red, like red-hot iron. A gigantic hand shot out from the center of the heavens, seized Ezekiel by the scruff of the neck, and held him suspended in the air. But the vision overflowed onto the other wall as well. Here Ezekiel stood, plunged up to his knees, in bones. His mouth was bright green and open, and coming from inside was a ribbon with red letters. People of Israel, people of Israel, the Messiah has come. The bones strung themselves together, the skulls rose up full of teeth and mud, and the terrible hand emerged from heaven, holding the new Jerusalem in its palm. 
the new Jerusalem, freshly built, brilliantly illuminated, all emeralds and rubies. The people looked at these paintings and shook their heads, murmuring. This angered the old rabbi. Why do you murmur? He shouted at them. Don't you believe in the God of our fathers? One more has been crucified. The Savior has come one step closer. That, you men of little faith, is what crucifixion means. He seized the scroll from the lectern and unrolled it with a violent movement. The sun entered through the open window. A stork descended from the sky and lighted on the roof of the house opposite, as though it too wanted to hear. Out of the devastated chest bounded the happy, triumphant cry. Sound in Zion, the trumpet of victory. Proclaim in Jerusalem the joyous news. Shout, Jehovah has come to his people. Rise up, Jerusalem. Lift high your hearts. Look from east and west. The Lord herds your sons. The mountains have been leveled. The hills have fled. All the trees have poured forth their perfume. Put on the trappings of your glory. Jerusalem, happiness has come to the people of Israel forever and ever. When, when was heard from the crowd, everyone turned. A tiny old man, slim and wrinkled like a raisin, stood up on tiptoe. When, father, when, he was shouting. The rabbi angrily rolled up the prophecies. Are you in a hurry, Manasses? he asked. Yes, answered the tiny old man. Tears were running down his face. I have no time. I'm going to die. The rabbi stretched forth his arm and pointed to Ezekiel, buried in the bones. Look, Manasses, you'll be resurrected. I'm old, I tell you, and blind. I cannot see. Peter intervened. The day was nearing its end. At night, he had fished at the lake of Janissaret, and he was pressed. Father, he said. You promised us a secret to comfort our hearts. What is the secret? Holding their breath, they all crowded around the old rabbi, as many as could fit in from the courtyard. The heat was intense, and there was a heavy smell of human sweat. The sexton threw tear-shaped pellets of cedar sap into the censer to deodorize the air. The old rabbi climbed up onto the stall to avoid suffocating. My children, he said, wiping away his sweat. Our hearts have filled with crosses. My black beard long ago turned gray. My gray beard turned white. My teeth fell to the ground. What old Manassees cried, I've been crying for years. How long, Lord? How long? Shall I die without seeing the Messiah? I asked this over and over, again and again. And one night the miracle happened. God answered, no, that was not the miracle. God replies every time we question him. But our flesh is demired and almost deaf. We do not hear. That night, however, I heard. And that 
was the miracle. What did you hear? Tell us everything, Father, Peter called. He elbowed his way through the crowd and stood in front of the the rabbi. The old man bent over and looked at Peter and smiled. God, Peter, is a fisherman like yourself. He too goes to fish at night when the moon is full or nearly full. And that night it was full. It sailed in the sky as white as milk, so exceedingly merciful and benevolent that I could not close my eyes. The house constricted me. I marched through the narrow lanes and left Nazareth, climbed up high, perched on a rock and started the the south, started toward the south, toward holy Jerusalem. The moon leaned over and looked at me like a human being smiling. I looked at it, at its mouth, its cheeks, at the corners of its eyes and sighed. I felt it was speaking to me, speaking to me out of the silence of the night, yet I could not hear. Not a leaf stirred on the earth. The unmown plain smelled just like bread. Milk cascaded down the mountains around me, down Tabor, Gilboa, and Carmel. This is God's night, I thought. The full moon must be the nocturnal face of the Lord. Nights in the future, Jerusalem will be such as this. No sooner had this thought come to me than my eyes filled with tears. Grievance and fear took hold of me. I've grown old, I shouted. Am I going to die without the, without the Messiah first having gladdened my sight? I jumped to my feet. The sacred fury had seized me again, removing my belt and all my clothes. I stood before God's eyes just as I was when my mother begot me. I wanted him to see me, to see how I had aged, how I'd withered and shriveled up like a fig leaf in autumn, like the bare dangling stem of a cluster of grapes which has been plundered by birds. I wanted him to see me, pity me, and move quickly. And as I stood there, stark naked before the Lord, I felt the moonlight penetrate my flesh. I had become Holy Spirit, one with God. I heard his voice, not from outside or above, but from within me. Within me. God's true voice always comes to us from within. Simeon, Simeon, I heard. I shall not let you die before you have seen. The Messiah heard him and grasped him with your hands. Lord, Say that again, I cried. Simeon, Simeon, I shall not let you die before you have seen the Messiah, heard him, and grasped him with your hands. I was so happy. I went out of my mind. Stark naked, I began to dance under the moon, clapping my hands and stamping my feet on the ground. I don't know if this dance lasted a split second, or a thousand years, but in any case, I had enough. I had enough. Finally, I found relief. Putting on my clothes and buckling my belt, I went down to Nazareth. 
The moment the cocks saw me from the perches high up on the rooftops, they began to crow. The sky laughed, the birds awoke, doors opened and bade me good morning. My shabby house glittered from top to bottom, doors, windows, everything, all rubies, wood, rocks, men, birds, all smelled the presence of God around me. The centurion himself, bloodsucker that he is, halted with astonishment. What's the matter with you, Rabbi? He asked me. You're a lighted torch. Watch out. Don't set Nazareth on fire. But I said nothing. I did not want him to soil my breath. I've kept this secret hidden, close to my skin for years and years. I've enjoyed it all by myself, jealousy and proudly. I, and I've waited. But today, this black day that has been a new cross nailed into our hearts. I am unable to guard it any longer. I pity the people of Israel. Therefore, I unveil to you the joyous news. He is coming. He is no longer far away. He has probably stopped for a drink of water at some nearby well or for a slice of bread at some oven where the loaves have just been removed. But no matter where he is, he will appear because God said so. And what he says, he does not unsay. Simeon, you will not die before you have seen the Messiah, heard him and grasped him with your hands. I feel my strength leaving me day by day, but to the degree it departs. By so much does the Savior approach. I am 85 years old. He cannot delay any more. A hairless, cross-eyed man with a sharp, skinny snout jumped up. He looked as though someone had forgotten to add the yeast when he was needed. But what if you live a thousand years, Father, he interrupted. What if you never die? We've seen that happy Enoch and Elijah are still alive. His tiny wry eyes flitted slyly from side to side. The rabbi pretended that he had not heard, but the cross-eyed man, man's hissed words were knives in his heart. He lifted his hand commandingly. I want to be alone with God. Leave, all of you. The place emptied out. The crowd dispersed. The old rabbi remained all by himself. He locked the street door and fell deep in a thought, leaning against the wall where the prophet Ezekiel hovered in the air. He is God, he reflected, and omnipotent. He does what he likes. Can that rascal Thomas be right? Woe is me if God decides I should live a thousand years. And if he decides I should never die, then the Messiah? Are the great hopes of the race of Israel all in vain? It has held the word of God in its womb for thousands of years, nourishing it as a mother nourishes her seed. Our flesh and bone have been devoured. 
We have melted away, living only for this sun. But now the race has gone into labor. Abraham's seed cries out, Release it, Lord. Release it at last. You are God. You can endure. We cannot. Mercy. He paced up and down the synagogue. The day had finally waned. The shadows snuffed out the paintings and swallowed Ezekiel. The old rabbi looked at the penumbra which descended about him, and suddenly all that he had seen and suffered in his life rushed into his mind. How many times and with what longing he had run from Galilee to Jerusalem, then from Jerusalem to the desert in pursuit of the Messiah. But without fail, a cross had put an end to his hopes, and he had returned to Nazareth ashamed. Today, however, he squeezed his head between his hands. No, no, he murmured in terror. No, no, it's impossible. For days and nights now his mind had been drumming and ready to spit. A new hope had come to him. A hope too large for his mind, a madness, a demon with, which was devouring him. But this was not the first time. The madness had been digging its claws into his mind for years. He would banish it and it would come again, but it had never dared appear during the day. It had always come in the darkness of night or in his dreams. Today, however, today at noon, in broad daylight, was he the one? He leaned against the walls, wall and closed his eyes. There he was, passing once more in front of him, gasping with the cross on his back. And all about him the air trembled, just as it must tremble around the archangels. Look, he raised his eyes. Never had the old rabbi seen so much of heaven in the eyes of man. Was he the one? Lord, Lord, the rabbi murmured. Why do you torment me? Why don't you answer The prophecies tore like lightning flashes through his mind. At one moment, his aged head filled with light. At the next, it sank without hope into the darkness. His bowels opened and the patriarchs came forth. Within him, his hard-necked, persevering face covered with wounds and led by Moses, the head ram with the twisted horns, started again on its endless journey from the Lord of Slavery to the land of Canaan. Then the journey continued from the land of Canaan to the future Jerusalem. In this new march, however, it was not the patriarch Moses who plays the trail, but another. The rabbi's mind throbbed, another, bearing a cross upon his shoulder. He reached the street door with one bound and opened it. The wind hit his face. He inhaled deeply. The sun had set. The birds were going home to sleep. The narrow streets filled with shadows. The earth grew cool. He locked the door and slipped the heavy key under his belt. For an instant, he lost courage. But then all at once, he made his decision. Head bowed. He set out toward Mary's house.
Mary sat on a high stool in the tiny yard of her house. She was spinning. It was still bright outside. The summer light drew slowly away from the face of the earth and did not wish to leave. Men and oxen were returning from their work in the fields. Housewives lighted fires for the evening cooking. The fragrance of burning wood invaded the afternoon air. Mary spun, and her mind twirled now this way, now that. Together with the spindle, memory and imagination joined. Her life seemed half truth, half fable. The petty round of daily tasks had lasted for years, and then suddenly the stunning uninvited peacock, the miracle had come and covered her tormented existence with its long golden wings. Take me where you want, Lord. Do with me what you will. You chose my husband. You presented me with my son and gave me my suffering. You tell me to cry out, and I cry out. You tell me to keep still, and I keep still. What am I, Lord? A handful of mud in your hands? And you need me as you please. Do what you want. There is only one thing I beg of you, Lord. Pity my son. A brilliantly white dove flew down from the roof opposite, beat its wings for a moment over her head, and then alighted with dignity on the pebbles of the yard and began to walk methodically around and around Mary's feet. It spread its tail feathers, bent its neck, turned its head and looked at Mary, its round eye flashing in the evening light like a ruby. It looked at her, spoke to her. It must want to inform me of some secret, she said to herself. Oh, if the old rabbi would only come. He also knows all about the language of the birds and could interpret it for me. She looked at the dove and felt sorry for it. Leaving her spindle, she called the bird in a very tender voice, and the delighted dove took a hop and landed on her joined knees. And there, as though its whole secret was that it had been longing to reach those knees, it squatted, drew in its wings, and remained motionless. Mary felt the sweet weight and smiled. Ah, if it were possible for God always to come down so sweetly over men. As she thought this, she recalled the morning she and her fiancé Joseph had climbed to the prophet Elijah's summit to heaven kiss Carmel. They wanted to beg the fiery prophet to mediate with God so that they might have a son whom they would then dedicate to the prophet's grace. They were to marry that same evening and had departed before dawn to receive the blessing of this flaming prophet whose great joy was the thunderbolt. Not a cloud in the sky. It was a lovely autumn. The human ants had gathered in their crops. The must was boiling in the jars. The figs drying sprung up on the rafters. Mary was 15 at the time, her groom an old man with gray hair, but in his firm hand he held as a support the staff 
which had been foreordained to blossom. They reached the holy summit at exactly noon. They knelt and touched the sharp blood-stained granite with their fingertips, trembling. A spark flew out of the rock and cut Mary's hand. Joseph opened his mouth to call the summit's wild inhabitant. But before he could utter a sound, the bellowing, hail-laden clouds bounded angrily down from the foundations of heaven and formed a swirling funnel over the sharp granite. As Joseph darted forward to clasp his fiancée to take her to the shelter of some cave, God slung a terrifying flash of lightning. Heaven and earth joined, and Mary fell over backward in a, in a swoon. When she came to and opened her eyes and looked around her, she saw Joseph lying face down on the black granite, paralyzed. Mary placed her hand on the dove which had sat up on her knees. She caressed it tightly, lightly, so that she would not frighten it. God descended in a savage form on top of the mountain and spoke to me. In a savage way, she murmured. What did he say to me? She had often been questioned. She had often questioned on this by the rabbi who was bewildered by the repeated miracles that surrounded her. Try to remember Mary, he would say. This is the way God sometimes speaks to men, by means of the thunderbolt. Fight hard to remember, so that we may discover your son's fate. There was thunder, Father. It rolled down from heaven like a creaking ox cart. And behind the thunder, Mary. Yes, you're right, Father. God spoke behind the thunder, but I wasn't able to discover the actual words. Forgive me. Caressing the dove, she struggled to bring the lightning back to mind after 30 years and to untangle its hidden meaning. She closed her eyes in her palm. She felt the dove's tiny, warm body and beating heart. Suddenly, she did not realize how she did not know why dove and lightning were one. She was sure of it. These heartbeats and the thunder all were God. She uttered a cry and jumped up in terror. Now, for the first time, she was able to make out the words hidden in the thunder, hidden in the dove's cooing. Hail, Mary. Hail, Mary. Without a doubt, this was what God had cried. Hail, Mary. Turning, she saw her husband propped up against the wall, still opening and closing his mouth. It was dark now, yet he still toiled and sweated. She went to the doorway, passing in front of him, but not speaking to him. She wanted to see if by any chance her son was coming. She had watched him twist the crucified man's bloody kerchief over his hair and started down the road towards the plain. Where had he gone? Why was he late? Was he going to stay out in the fields again until daybreak? 
As she stood on the threshold, she saw the old rabbi approaching. He was puffing, leaning heavily on his crosshair. The tufts of white hair at each of his temples waved in the evening breeze, which had begun to come down from Mount Carmel. Mary stepped to one side with respect, and the rabbi entered. He took his brother's hand, patted it, but did not speak to him. What could he say? His mind submerged in dark waters. He turned to Mary. Your eyes are shining, Mary, he said. What's the matter? Did God come again? Father, I've found it, said Mary, unable to restrain herself. You found it? Found what? In God's name. The words behind the lightning. The rabbi gave a start. Great is the God of Israel, he cried, lifting his Lifting high his arms, this was precisely why I came, Mary, to ask once more. Today, as you know, one of our hopes was crucified, and my heart, I found it, Father, Mary repeated. While I was sitting this evening and spinning and thinking again about the lightning, I felt the thunder grow quiet within me for the first time. And behind it, I heard a serene, clear voice, the voice of God. Hail Mary. The rabbi collapsed, collapsed onto a stool, squeezing his temples between his hands. He plunged into deep thought. After a considerable interval, he lifted his head. Nothing else, Mary? Bend far down within yourself so that you'll be sure to hear. The fate of Israel may depend upon what you say. When Mary heard the rabbi's words, she became terrified. Her breast began to tremble. And once more, her mind strained to discover what was behind the thunder. No, she murmured finally, exhausted. No, father. He said more, much more, but I can't hear it. I'm trying as hard as I can, but I cannot hear what he said. The rabbi placed his hand on top of her head, above her large eyes. Fast, Mary, and pray. Do not dissipate your mind on daily tasks. There are times when a glowing halo as bright as lightning moves all around your face. Is it truly light, I wonder? I can't tell. Fast, pray, and you will hear. Hail, Mary. God's message begins with kindness. Try hard to hear what follows. In order to hide her agitation, Mary went to the shelf where she kept the jugs. She unhooked a brass cup filled it with cool water, got a handful of dates also, and bent over to hand them to the old man. I'm not hungry or thirsty, Mary, he said. Thank you. Sit down. I have something to say to you. Mary took the lowest stool and sat at the rabbi's feet, tipping up her head. She waited. The old man tested the words one by one in his mind. What he wanted to say was difficult. It was a hope so spidery fine and slippery 
that he was unable to find words spidery and slippery enough to avoid giving the hope too much weight and turning it into certainty. He, he did not want to terrify the mother. Mary, he said finally. A mystery roams outside this house like a desert lion. You are not the same as other women. Mary, don't you feel that? No, I don't, Father, she murmured. I am like all women. I love all the cares and joys of women. I like to wash, to cook, to go to the fountain for water, to chat merrily with the neighbors, and in the evening to sit in my doorway and watch the passers-by and my heart, Father, like the hearts of all women, is full of pain. You're not the same as other women, Mary, the rabbi repeated in a solemn tone, raising his hand as though he wished to prevent all objections. And your son, the rabbi stopped. How could he find words to express this? The most difficult part of all. He looked up at the heavens and listened. Some of the birds in the trees were preparing to go to sleep, others to wake up. The wheel turned. The day sank below men's feet. The rabbi sighed. How the days rushed by, how rapidly one pursued the next. Dawn, dusk, the passage of the sun, the passage of moon after moon, children became men, black hairs whitened. The sea ate into the land, mountains were stripped bare, and still the one they awaited did not come. My son, said Mary, her voice trembling. My son, father? He is not like other sons, Mary. The rabbi boldly replied. He waited his words once more and continued after a moment. Sometimes when he is alone during the night and thinks no one is watching him, the whole circumference of his face gleams in the darkness. May God forgive me, Mary, but I've made a small hole high in the wall. I climbed up. I climb up and I watch him from there. I spy on what he does. Why? Because I confess it. I'm completely confused. My knowledge is of no help whatsoever. I enroll the scriptures tirelessly, but I cannot comprehend what or who he is. I spy on him in secret. Therefore, and in the darkness, I discern this light which licks him and devours his face. That is why he's been growing paler day by day, and melting away. It's not because of sickness, fasting, or prayer. No, he is being devoured by this light. Mary sighed. Woe betide the mother who bears a son, unlike all the rest, she thought. But she did not speak. The old man bent over her now and lowered his voice. His lips were on fire. Hail Mary, he said. God is all-powerful. His designs are inscrutable. Your son might be. But the unfortunate mother uttered a cry. Have pity on me, father. A prophet. A prophet? 
No, no. And if God has it so written, let him rub it out. I want my son, a man like everyone else, nothing more, nothing less. Like everyone else, let him build troughs, cradles, plows, and household utensils as his father used to do. And not, as just now, crosses to crucify human beings. Let him marry a nice young girl from a respectable home with a dowry. Let him be a liberal provider, have children. And then we'll all go out together every Saturday to the promenade. Grandma, children and grandchildren, so that everyone can admire us. The rabbi leaned heavily on his crossier and got up. Mary, he said severely, if God listened to mothers, we would all rot away in a bog of security and easy living. When you're alone, think over everything we have said. He turned to his brother in order to bid him good night. Joseph, his glassy eyes, misty, and his tongue hanging out, stared into the air, struggling to speak. Mary shook her head. He's been fighting since morning and still hasn't freed himself. She went up to him and sponged the contorted, drooling mouth. But the moment the rabbi held out his hand to say goodnight to Mary also, the door opened furtively and the sun appeared on the threshold, his face gleaming in the darkness. The gory kerchief was pasted to his hair, but the night obscured the large tears which still furrowed his cheeks, as well as the dust and blood which coated his feet. He he strode over the threshold, looked hastily, looked hastily about him, discovered his mother and the rabbi, and in the darkness near the wall, his father's glassy eyes. Mary started to light the lamp, but the rabbi held her back. Wait, he murmured. I'll talk to him. Emboldening his heart, he approached. Jesus, he said tenderly, lowering his voice so that the mother would not hear. Jesus, my child, how long are you going to resist him? And then the entire cottage shook with a savage shout. Until I die. All at once, as though every ounce of strength had flowed out of him, the son of Mary collapsed to the ground and leaned against the wall, gasping for breath. The rabbi wanted to speak to him again. He leaned over him, but immediately drew back with a jolt. He felt as though he had approached a great fire and burned his face. God is all around him, he reflected. Yes, it's God who's around him. And he lets no one come near. I'd better leave. He departed and plunged into thought. The door closed, but Mary did not dare light the lamp. A wild beast lay in wait for her in the darkness. Standing in the middle of the house, she listened to her husband's hopeless clucking and to her son who, fallen in a heap on the ground, gasped in terror as though being strangled. Someone was choking him. Who? 
The unfortunate mother dug her nails into her cheeks and asked God, asked him again, complained, shouted, I'm a mother. Don't you pity me? But no one answered. And while she stood there, fixed and speechless, hearing every vein in her body tremble, there was a wild, triumphant cry. The tongue of the paralyzed man had been loosed with the entire word, and it issued at last from his contorted mouth, syllable by syllable, and reverberated throughout the house. Adonai! But as the old man unmouthed his word, he sank instantaneously like lead into the depths of sleep. Mary nerved herself and lighted the lamp. The food was boiling. Going to the hearth, she knelt and removed the lid of the earthenware pot to see if any water was needed or perhaps a pinch of salt. That concludes chapter 5, The Last Temptation of Christ. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing today, know that Jesus Christ loves you. And I guess I do too. And I'm still waiting for the sun to come up where I am here. Bottom line, today and every day, God first, do the next right thing. The world will fall into place around you. Have a wonderful day. God bless you. Thanks for being here. If I ventured in the slipstream Between the viaducts of your dream Where a mobile steel runs cracking And the dead center back road stop Could you find me? Would you kiss my eyes? Lay me down. Silence is easy to be born again. To be born again. From the far side of the ocean, if I put the wheels in motion, then I stand with my arms behind me. I'm pushing out the door. Could you find me? Would you kiss my eyes? Lay me down. Silence is to be born again. To be born again.